So if you've been around Christmas much, you know, what we talk about in Christmas, we're all talking about hope. Christmas is all about hope. It's full of hope. Hope this, hope that. In fact, we just uh, sung a song about the coming king, right? And the reason we sang about the coming king is because we're singing about hope. Kings bring hope. And so we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. So we're talking about the hope of freedom, the hope of, of, of release from bondage, the hope of redemption. That is what Christmas is about. But, but the problem is, even though we sing about it, we talk about it, it's in our Christmas cards, all of this, I actually see a lot more hopelessness than I do hopefulness in our world today. We think change isn't really possible. We think joy is just an illusion or an idea cast upon us by the hallmarks of the world. I feel this myself often. I fall into uh, cynicism, skepticism, and I struggle to get out of that pattern. Why is that? I don't know if you've seen the Amazon Prime, or actually it's the Amazon Fire commercial. It goes something like this. You've been eye-guzzling that show for 58 episodes. Oh God, there they are. The final, final credits. You've fallen into a show hole. Have you not heard this? <laughs> the struggle could, be, could not be more real. The struggle could, be, could not be more real. Why do I even own a TV? You ever feel this way? Are you ever stuck in a show hole? Well, Amazon's, they're brilliant, right? They're the smartest people in the world. They're taking over the world. And they know how to tap into this thing called hope. And so in this commercial, they tap into hope. And so they promise us hope in something, right? And so this is how the commercial goes. You've fallen into a show hole. The struggle could not be more real. And then it says this. And then you see it. Amazon's vast library of best shows ever. So long, show hole. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. If you haven't seen that commercial, Google it. It's hilarious. She knits herself into a sweater because she's in a show hole. The struggle could not be more real. Now, the only thing um, about this commercial or, or the thing that we should recognize is that what Amazon's doing is tapping in to the hope equation, right? So hope is only real if there's something real to hope in, like, if, Am if, if we all found out, like, great commercial, we're hoping in this Amazon, you know, library of shows, but if all of a sudden everybody started finding out that there was actually no library, or the library actually didn't have the best shows ever, you know, all it had was <laughs> reruns of JAG, you know, great show, but then we'd stop having hope, right, and we'd be stuck in our show hole. So the idea is this, like, if we hope in something, hope is only real if the thing that we're hoping in is real. If it's not real, then it's not hope, it's something else. It's an illusion. We have to have a real thing to hope in. So the only way to escape the realness of hopelessness is to trust in the realness of the solution. So Webster's Dictionary defines hope like this. To cherish a desire with anticipation. And I think here the key word uh, or the key phrase in that definition is with anticipation. 
So if you've ever felt anticipation, you know it's a powerful motivator. It's a powerful feeling. But the powerful thing about hope, the powerful thing about anticipation, is that there's something actually real to anticipate. I can't anticipate a thing if I don't believe that it's real. Uh, Let me give you an illustration of this. So one way to kind of define poverty is hopelessness. And I recently read this article, um, and the title of the article was this. People, or poor people don't plan long term. We'll just get our hearts broken. And the title of this article is actually a quote from the woman who's interviewed in the article, and she herself is in poverty. And the subtitle of the article is this, Why do so many poor people eat junk food, fail to budget properly, show no ambition? And Linda, the person being interviewed, she knew why. Because she was one of them. Um, So I wanted to read a few of the quotes from the article, a few few of the quotes uh, from the mouth of Linda as she tells her own story in her own words. I think it's eye-opening to hear her describe this cycle of hopelessness. This hopelessness attached to poverty. And and we're going to actually be putting a link to the full article if you want to read it on our blog. We uh, every, every sermon, we kind of chop up the sermon notes and we put together a blog. If, if you didn't know that, you can get there through our website, but you can kind of read a summary of the sermons. We'll put, we'll put this link in there so that you could read the whole article if you want. It's heartbreaking, and it kind of shows you inside this idea of hopelessness. So here's a few snippets. Here's a few quotes. Uh, Linda says this, Rest is a luxury for the rich. I get up at 6 a.m., I go to school, Then I go to work, then I get the kids, then I pick up my husband, then I have half an hour to change and go to my second job. I get home from that job around 12.30 a.m. after midnight. I'm in bed by 3 a.m. after I finish my homework. I never get a day off from work unless I'm fairly sick. It doesn't leave you much room to think about what you're doing, only to attend to the next thing and then the next Planning isn't in the mix. And here's my translation of what Linda's saying. Rest isn't real for me. It's not a real option in my world. So why hope for it? Let me read you another uh, quote. Linda says this. We've learned not to try too hard to be middle class. It never works out well and always makes you feel worse for having tried and failed yet again. Better not to try. It makes more sense to get food that you know will be palatable and cheap and that keeps well. Junk food is a pleasure that we are allowed to have. Why would would we give that up? We have very few pleasures. She said later in the article, convenience food is just that. And we are not allowed many conveniences. Here's my translation. Good health, the middle class, that's not a real option in my world. So why hope for something that's not real? I'm going to just do uh, one more here. Linda said this, Nobody gives enough thought to depression. You have to understand that we know that we're never not, that we, we know that we will never not feel tired. We will never feel hopeful. We will never get a vacation, ever. 
We know that the very act of being poor guarantees that we will never not be poor. It doesn't, get, it doesn't give much reason to improve ourselves. We don't apply for jobs because we know that we can't afford to look nice enough to hold them. Beauty is the thing you get when you can afford it. And that's how you get the job that you need in order to be beautiful. There isn't much point in trying. My translation, hope is foolish. When there's no real alternatives, when there's no real options, when there's no real future besides your present future, then there's no real hope. That's hopelessness. Now here's the deal. When I think about the Christmas story, and I think about the hope that we apparently attach to it, I wonder, how can Christmas be all about hope? How can it be full of hope? if in reality we don't believe that the Christmas story is a true story, that it's a real story, that Jesus really was the incarnate Son of God, that He really did die and that He really did rise from the dead. How can we have hope if we don't believe it's real? Whew. Okay, that was heavy. But we need to wrestle. We need to wrestle with that. Uh, how many of you have seen the pod, or, or, or not seen, listened to the podcast Serial? Raise your hand if you've listened to the podcast Serial. Really? That's all? It's the number one podcast in the world. You've got to listen to it, and I guarantee you will after tonight. Okay, so number one podcast in, in the world. And yet, it's actually a very simple show, right? If you've listened to it. It's just one woman recounting her quest to find the truth in a 1999 murder case in which a 17-year-old boy, Adnan Syed, was convicted of first-degree murder of his ex-girlfriend, Hay Lee. That's, that's the gist. And so she retraces uh, the case. It's 15 years after the case uh, has been uh, prosecuted and convicted, and Adnan is in jail, and he's been in jail, but he continues to say that he had nothing to do with it. So she reinvestigates, opens it up, uh, re-interviews, listens to all the transcripts and interviews, the police reports, trying to come up with her own conclusion. Okay, That's the gist of the podcast. And it's week after week, the story of uh, Adnan Syed's murder trial. So, so why, why are so many people across the, uh, the planet obsessed with cereal? Here's what I think. One, we love true stories because as much as we love a good tale, a good fiction, there's just something uh, much more addicting about a true story, right? Like there's something about the realness of it that makes us want to know, how is this going to end? What happened here? That's one thing. Another thing, I think we desire to know the story behind the story, right? I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, you keep listening because you're just hoping and hoping that you come to know the real story behind the story. We love to kind of have the inside scoop. I won't, I won't tell you how the podcast ends because you're probably going to go listen to it now, uh, but it keeps drawing you in. What's the real story? I just want to know the real story. And so, uh, Sarah Koenig, she's, she's the journalist, the, and she's the one narrating, and you just hear that in her voice. She just wants to know the real story 
behind the story. It's, it's kind of shrouded in mystery. Um, there wasn't a ton of evidence in the case. It's kind of one guy's story, uh, a friend of Adnan against his story. He says he doesn't do it. His friend Jay says, I helped him bury the body. And so it's kind of like, I'm not giving anything away here. This happens in the first episode. So I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> don't worry, okay? And uh, you never really know what's going on, okay? Here's this, uh, this kid, Adnan. He's got, you know, great grades. He's an athlete. He, uh, what else? Everybody speaks well of him. He's very sharp, very intelligent. There's, there's tons of interviews captured with him. He's a very smart guy. He was the prom prince. I mean, all of these things, you're like, could this guy really be a murderer, right? Was he convicted properly? So anyhow, tons of suspense, all this stuff. Now, uh, Sarah Koenig narrates, and she did this year-long investigation, right? So she spent a year of her life researching this case. And the podcast is littered with original interviews, right, that were taped 15 years ago when the police originally, there's like uh, trial transcripts, uh, trial audio so you can hear the real testimonies of the, of the real people. Uh, but then she also does her own interviews, right? She re-interviews people saying, was anything missed? She interviews some people that weren't interviewed by the first people, right? I'm going somewhere. Just stick with me here. Now, uh, Sarah is on this quest herself for truth, for the real story. And ultimately she comes, and this is kind of the struggle throughout the thing. She keeps asking herself, I just want to know who's telling the truth. I just want to know what the real story is. Who's lying and who's telling the truth? Adnan or Jay? That's basically what the, what, what the trial came down to. Adnan was convicted, but was it the right choice? Now, the more I listened, the more and more I thought about another young man who was convicted of another crime It reminded me of the case of the Nazarene. You may have heard of him. His name's Jesus. He's a stand-up young man. No one has anything bad to say about him. He's got a clean record at the time of his conviction. And the primary crux of Jesus' case is this question. Who's telling the truth? Is Jesus telling the truth? He maintains it until he's on the cross. I am the Son of God. Or... Is it the Jewish officials who keep saying he's a blasphemer, he's, he's lying, he's telling people he's God and he's not? Who's telling the truth? You see? And then after Jesus' execution, his alleged uh, raise, uh, being raised from the grave, the question's the same. Who's lying? Now, G- uh, Jesus' disciples are saying, we saw him. He's risen from the grave, and now he's ascended to be with the Father. And we ate with him, and we, we, we drank with him, and we learned from him for 40 days. But now who's lying? Is it the disciples that are lying? Or is it the Jewish authorities? Now I began to realize uh, there's four Gospels, but there's one Gospel in particular That the way the gospel writer goes about explaining the life of Jesus reminds me a lot of this podcast, Serial. In fact, I believe that Luke, 
the Gospel of Luke, is the original serial podcast. Okay? The original. Luke is the original Sarah Koenig. And once you listen to it, if you haven't listened to it, you'll grow to love Sarah. She's very easy to listen to. And so uh, part of the reason that I think this, if you turn with me, Luke chapter 1, the very first uh, words of Luke. Get there with me. Let's see what Luke says about why he's writing his gospel, okay? Read this with me. This is very exciting stuff. Read this. Okay, here we go. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us relating to Jesus, just as those who, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most ex- excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Theophilus is this rich dude that pays Luke, kind of funds his sort of investigation to go figure out what's true and what's false. You see what he's doing? He wants to make an account. And so, uh, what we know here is that Luke wrote a gospel, and then he also wrote like season two, which is called Acts. The gospel of Luke is all about Jesus' life up to the point of his uh, death and resurrection and his ascension, and then Acts picks up, season two picks up, and it chronicles the rise of the early church. Okay? Just to kind of give you some context. So Luke's actually got season one, season two, which is pretty cool. So I thought maybe people would give the story of Jesus a little bit more attention They'd actually think about it a little bit harder if it was recorded for us like a season of cereal. Here's what it might sound like. From the Gospel of Luke, this is cereal. One story told week by week. I'm Luke. Now the story I'm about to tell you first came to my attention about 15 years ago. Now it's important to note that although this story is about a Jewish man, I am not Jewish. And although this story includes a lot of theological talk, I am not a trained theologian. In fact, I am a medical doctor. Yeah, and and most doctors, like me, tend to be a little bit more skeptical. Sound familiar? Which is to say, I need a little more evidence to come to my conclusions. A lot, at least a lot more than the average Joe. This story is about a man named Jesus. He wasn't a wealthy man. He wasn't a powerful man. In a normal way, he was a normal man with abnormal power and authority. Except for the fact that his life and his death shook up the Mediterranean world like never before. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I've got, got a lot more. I've got a lot more. Just keep with me. This is a full episode, okay? Just the music ended. I mean, you can play it again. It sounded pretty good. And Jesus' story shook me up, too. That is why for the last two years, while, while my traveling companion Paul was in jail, you'll hear more about him later, I've traveled over to Palestine 
methodically collecting data. Hey, Kurt, hit me with that music. They liked it a lot more when the music was gone. Let's just keep replaying that first song. Okay, it gets me going. Yeah, come on. I traveled all over Palestine, methodically collecting data about Jesus' life, story by story, interview by interview, speaking with anyone who'd give me the time of day, his family, his friends, those who followed him and loved him, and even those who hated him. My goal? To get to the really real story of Jesus. Over the next few episodes, you'll hear what I found out. If you join me on this season of Serial. Now before we get deep into the details, it seems best to me that I explain why this story was so intriguing and it took two years of my life to research. It all started when I heard about a man named Paul. Well, that was not his name then. His name was Saul. Saul was one of those hyper-religious Jews. We're talking advanced theological education. We're talking crazy dietary restrictions. The whole shebang. He had more invested in Judaism than anyone I'd ever met. But for some reason, Saul left the synagogue system, left his family, left everything that was so dear to him. For what? To travel around the Mediterranean telling people about this Jesus of Nazareth? I was confused. I was so confused. But I was also too curious to let it go. I had to speak to Paul myself. Okay. I wasn't sure what to expect, but after hearing Paul's story, seeing the passion with which this former Jewish elitist spoke about Jesus, my curiosity overflowed with more questions than I can even count. I mean, here's a guy who just a few years ago was persecuting Christians. What had changed him? I had to check it out further. I tracked him down. I asked Paul some very tough questions. I asked him, what changed you? This is what he said. This is Paul speaking. When I, still, uh, when I still went by the name Saul, and I was still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of Jesus, I went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that I found, if I found any belonging to the way, that's Christians, men or women, I might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as I was going on my way, I approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around me, and falling to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with me stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So I rose from the ground, and although my eyes were opened, I saw nothing. So my companions led me by the hand and brought me into Damascus. And there, for three days, I was without sight. I neither ate nor drank. Then a man named Ananias came in and lay his hands on me, and I regained my sight. It was like scales falling from my eyes. Ananias was a Christian, and he taught me all about Jesus. And I believed and was baptized. That's what changed me. Now you have to understand, the way Paul spoke, the conviction in his eyes, in his speech, this was not just some story. He was convinced he'd seen Jesus. He was convinced that Jesus was the Christ. I was absolutely shaken by my time with Paul. 
and I started asking around, were there others that were as convinced as him? And as I kept hearing the same story over and over again, you know, the same story, but slightly different, like different enough that you know that they weren't just all reading off a script, that's what it seemed like. It seemed like it was not fabricated. To them, it was very much real. It seems like dozens of people that I've met personally, and I've heard of hundreds more, claiming to have seen Jesus after the crucifixion in Jerusalem. I had to know more. I had to keep digging. And I started by asking myself some pretty challenging questions. Questions that all seemed to come back to the resurrection of Jesus. What really happened? The case seemed to hinge on this one moment in history. What really happened at that tomb? Now, it seems that everyone agrees, at least on one thing, the Jewish officials, the Christians, the Romans, they all agree that Jesus' body was no longer in the grave which he was buried in. It's empty. We can all agree on that, but that's where the agreement ends. I heard differing stories from everyone else. No one else agreed on the reasoning for the empty tomb. The Jews are saying it was his disciples that stole the body and hid it somewhere, and no one else knows where. The Christians are claiming that God actually rose Jesus from the dead, and he's living. He's no longer dead. That he appeared to him, that he ate with them, that he taught them, and that he ascended to heaven. Now, I just need to pause here and remind you of my profession. I am a medical doctor. So when I first heard this story, I immediately thought this was ludicrous. I mean, me of all people knows that no one comes back from the dead. But the more I talked to these eyewitnesses and the more of the accounts of the resurrected Jesus piled up on themselves, I started to get skeptical of my skepticism. I mean, it makes no sense to me why disciples of anyone would keep following someone after they've been convicted of blasphemy and killed. Like, in what world is it a good idea? To, in what world is it a good idea to make up a crazy story so that what? So that you can be executed in the same way by the same, like the same guy that was hung on a cross? Kind of makes you think. And, and, and the story that the Jews were telling was that the disciples came and they risked their lives to attack the Roman guard so that they could steal the body. I mean, the Roman guard, these are the best trained military folk in the world. Like, how could this be? And all for what? So that they could pretend that their Messiah was alive? Hmm. See my confusion. There's no use in following a dead guy, is there? What's the point? This is so hard for me to get past, but yet I see these people again and again giving up their lives, giving up their professions, leaving their families to follow this so-called risen Savior. Why? Like, why would I cut off my family ties for a dead guy? I mean, I've heard this story of this guy named Stephen. I mean, he was literally stoned to death because he would not recant that he'd seen Jesus alive. Here's where it gets super crazy. Guess who was at Stephen's stoning? Paul. Paul? That's crazy. Paul helped kill a Christian, and now Paul has given his life to the Christian message. What could make a man change so drastically? As I started looking deeper and deeper into this stuff, i got to tell you, 
it just got weirder. Was Jesus really who the disciples said he was? Or was he who the Jewish officials said he was? Who is lying? Who is telling the truth? Come along with me in this series. I'll show you what I found. A story told week by week. I can almost guarantee you, you'll find yourself right where I found myself in those first days, those first weeks, those first months investigating this story. At times, the deeper I went, the more confused I get. You'll get confused too. Who was this Jesus of Nazareth? Was he really guilty of the crime he was executed for, blaspheming, claiming to be the Son of God? I mean, he was claiming to be God, so like, I get why they convicted him. But what if he wasn't lying? Throughout my three, uh, two-year investigation, I collected more and more evidence. I talked to more eyewitnesses. I spoke to his mother, his brothers. Oh, and let me just say something about his brother. His brother thought Jesus was crazy when he was around. He told Jesus to shut up. He was like the Jewish official. He said, Jesus, shut your mouth. Stop saying the things you're saying. You're going to get in trouble. But then you know what happened? After Jesus died, his brother started leading the church that worshipped Jesus. Like, I don't know about you, but if my brother was claiming to be God and then he died, I wouldn't start worshiping him. I would distance myself. But James, the brother of Jesus, did the opposite. What? Why would you defend a liar? Why would you double down and risk your own own life to defend a lie? So you can see, I was super confused. What was going on here? I mean, who are we supposed to trust, right? Our government, the court system, the religious leaders, the experts? I mean, it seems right and fair. So you can sense my frustration and why I thought it necessary to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and teachers who have delivered their stories to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time now, to write an orderly account. Who was this Jesus? He was either a pathological liar, a, psych- a psychopathic lunatic, or maybe he was actually telling the truth. Maybe he was innocent. Maybe he really was the Son of God. Maybe he really did die and rise from the grave. Join me on my quest for the really real story of Jesus this season on Serial. Now you clap. Now you clap. That was long. That was it. All right. You guys want to hear more, don't you? Well, lucky for you, turn with me in your Bibles here uh, to the rest of chapter 1. Now, this is honestly how I think Luke went about understanding the story of Jesus. He's going, he's re-interviewing all the eyewitnesses. Luke himself did not actually, he was not one of the disciples. He was a companion of Paul the Apostle, so he had first-hand knowledge of all this information, but he went on this investigation to for himself hear from these eyewitnesses the stories that he had heard to find out what is true. And so what we have at the beginning of Luke is we have 
his account of after his interviews, after hearing from people, after reading what other people wrote, this is what he comes to find as true. And so we see in Luke, and Luke is the longest of the Gospels. He's a doctor, so he tends to need to do his, his uh, investigation thoroughly. He starts in Jesus' hometown, and we have the most uh, detailed account of the, of the birth narrative right here in Luke. And he says, you know what? I'm going to start in Nazareth. And so he goes to Nazareth, and he starts interviewing people. He starts interviewing people. So if you look, I'm not going to read all of it, but Luke, we read, we read the first four verses. Luke 5 to 25, what we see is actually the story of John the Baptist. And you've probably always wondered, why does the Gospel of Luke start with the story of John the Baptist? John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he, uh, he, his parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth, the aunt of Mary. And presumably what Luke has done here is he's gone back and he's asked eyewitness account, like, tell me this story. I've heard rumors about the birth of John the Baptist, but I don't really know what's going on. We don't know for sure if Elizabeth was alive, but we know that people that knew her well and had heard her talk about this were alive. It may actually have been Mary who told the story. We don't know. But you say, well, why does Luke include this in his narrative? Now, here's what I think's going on. Now, remember, he's like Sarah Koenig. He's trying to figure out, is there reliable evidence to the narrative that I've heard? Now, this is why I believe that he's put this in here. This is a fantastical account. It says, I mean, they were old. Zechariah and Elizabeth were old, and they were having a son. And it actually says that angels appeared uh, to them to tell them this. And I think what Luke's saying here is that, listen, if we're going to believe that the story of Jesus is real... Wouldn't it make sense that there's some other crazy stuff going on? And actually, there is some crazy stuff going on. God wasn't just intervening in the life of Mary, but everybody around Mary and Joseph. He was intervening as he was putting his plan into action. And so Luke investigates. God is working elsewhere at this time in history. So then you go on and you look at Luke uh, 26 on to 38. 26 to 38, and we have the story of Jesus' birth foretold, right? And the angel Gabriel, sent by God, visits Mary and explains to her that she's going to have a son and that she should call him uh, uh, Jesus and that she's going to have the Holy Spirit come upon her and she's going to conceive. And so Luke goes and he actually interviews Mary and asks her these questions. Now what's crazy about this part of the story is like, if Mary were making up this story, don't you think that she'd sort of change her tune after her son dies, right? Like, tell everybody that she had made it up because she didn't want to get in trouble for having premarital sex? Wouldn't she not stick with her story? I mean, her other son is now leading the church in Jerusalem, and he's fearing for his life every single day. If she just came out and said, you guys, I made that whole thing up. But she sticks to her story. She says, yeah. I never had sex and I got pregnant. And an angel appeared to me and he told me this is how it would happen. That's wild. Luke verifies this by going to the eyewitnesses. Then what we see as we go on in the rest of chapter 1, Mary visits Elizabeth. Uh, Mary has this song of praise. You see the birth of John the Baptist. 
You see Zechariah's prophecy. And so there's all this detail. And you've got to remember that Luke's going and he's hearing this from people telling him these things. And so it seems odd, doesn't it, that all this detail would be built up around this lie. It seems rather elaborate if the lies aren't true. What's the end game? What's the end game? Why are they doing this? Now back to chapter 2. And this text is also uh, what you'll see in your bulletin. It says this. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to, re- uh, to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. What's going on? Why all this detail? Why all this detail? Luke is wanting us to see that this is a real event that happened in real history. And so he's giving us these markers so that we can see. And he'd probably heard the tale like, yeah, they're from Nazareth, but they went to Bethlehem. And it's like, well, why is that? Like, why did you go to Bethlehem? Why didn't you, when you're, when you're like nine months pregnant, why are you traveling to Bethlehem? And so he investigates, he hears, oh, because... They had to, because the government forced people to go to their hometown. Keep reading. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her first son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, think of Luke. He's a skeptic. He's like, okay, Like, seriously, like, there was no room in the inn. That must just be a part of the fairy tale. But Luke keeps pushing. Did that really happen? Was there really no room in the inn? The manger just seems like a nonsensical part of the story, added for effect. Is that really true? So look what he does. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So he brings in these shepherds. Why is he bringing these shepherds into his narrative? Because he'd heard that there were shepherds at the birth of Jesus. And so you know what he does? He goes and he talks to them. He says, has anybody heard of a shepherd who was actually there? And he finds somebody, and they tell him this story. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and glory shone all around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this uh, thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Eyewitnesses to the story. That's why Luke puts him in here. He says, you want to know if it's true? Go talk to the shepherds. They've got nothing to lie about. It's true. Go ask them. Eyewitness account. 
Now this is where it gets funny. You can picture Luke like asking, he's talking to the shepherd, he's like, so like, what did you think after you saw this happen? Like, did you think that you were actually going to see a manger when you went out? And they're probably like, no, we thought we were all like had eaten a bad mushroom, like we didn't know what was going on, but they were actually there in the manger. Then look what it says. Verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What's that mean? They went out and they told everybody. I mean, you got to think Luke's now like, dude, what did you think people were actually going to say when you told them that? Did you think that they were going to believe you? Look at verse 18. And all who heard what the shepherds had said wondered at what the shepherds had told them. They're like, serious? You're crazy. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, and it has been told to them. And at the end of the eight days when he, he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Mary's story never changed. The shepherd's story never changed. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's real. Now here's the decision. If you were to imagine coming to the end of season one of Luke's serial, and then you've got season two of Luke retelling all that had happened and all that he'd learned about the rise of the church and all the sacrifices and all the deaths that people kept to keep this so-called lie. You would come to the end of it, and this is what happens in the real serial, and you have to make a decision. Who's telling the truth? Are the eyewitnesses lying? Which ones are telling the truth? How does it all fit together? How does all the data come to a conclusion? And just like the podcast, you've got to make your own decision. Is Jesus guilty or is he innocent? Who's telling the truth and who's lying? Yes, the courts of Jesus' day convicted him, but will you do the same? If he's lying, then he's guilty of blasphemy, and he is a liar or he's a lunatic, and he's responsible for the biggest sham in human history, and the last thing you want to be doing is be in this place singing about him on Christmas because he's the biggest liar there ever was. He's not a good teacher. He's not a pious man. He's a scoundrel. Or he's telling the truth. And that means that he's actually God, incarnate through the Virgin Mary. The Immaculate Conception is real. His death must mean something very big for God to endure and go through all of that. And his resurrection must have happened. And the hope that he claims to bring with him, that we sing about on, on Christmas Day, that must be real too. That must be real too. And so all that anticipation, all that longing that we sing about on Christmas, that's not foolish. Because it's real. I've read Luke's Gospel. I've thought these thoughts. And I believe with all my heart 
that the Christmas story is a true story. Not just parts of it, all of it. And that means that God really sent Himself into the world through the Incarnation, through the womb of Mary of Nazareth, a woman betrothed but not yet married to a man named Joseph who was in the line of King David. It means that they really did have a baby boy who they named Jesus, who really did have angels sing about Him that first Christmas. And it means that Jesus was really God. But it also means that Jesus had real parents because He was a real human being. And this boy was really born into a royal bloodline of the kings of Israel. He had real brothers. He had real friends. Jesus prayed real prayers to God the Father. Jesus cried real tears. He helped real people. Jesus cured real disease. He healed real blindness. Jesus ate real food. And He sat with real scoundrels. Jesus sweat real sweat as He worked real labor. Jesus shed real human blood when He was whipped and beaten for a crime that He never committed. Jesus breathed real air until He breathed His last, offering Himself up as a sacrifice for my real sin. Jesus was buried in a real grave, and Jesus rose from a real grave. And He really appeared to His disciples and to up to 500 others. And so why are all these real things so important? Because there is something else that is just as real as all that I just said. It's something as real this Christmas season as ever. And that's the problems of real people. Those are most definitely real. People in this room, people in other rooms that you're going to be at this week, Real problems. For them, poverty is real. Disease is real. Cancer is real. Death is real. Depression is real. Addiction is real. Anger is real. Domestic abuse is real. Unemployment is real. Loneliness is real. Orphans are real. Widows are real. Hunger is real. Homelessness is real. Hopelessness is real. Waywardness is real. Crises of faith are real. And despair is real. And the reason why we must not intentionally or unintentionally imply that the Christmas story is not real is because if the Christmas story is a legend, if it's a fairy tale, if it's not real, then there is no hope for those people and their real problems. Hope is only found because it's a real story. God loves us so much more. His love is so much more real than just an idea or a notion. God's love is tangible. It's powerful because His presence is real. It's a real presence in the real world right now. And Luke knew that. He experienced it. He investigated it. And it was real. It was so real. And so it's good news. It's real good news. Because it's a real solution, a real antidote, a real hope for real freedom, for real rescue from the most depressing, despairing problems that face humanity and our world and that face me. So what do you do? What do you do 
if you know that it's real. One, act like the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas is real. Act like it's real. Two, act on this reality. Act on it. If God had sent his son into the world that that very first Christmas, if that's a real story, that God would send himself into the world to be a real solution for real problems, then do you think what he wants you to do as a follower of Jesus, as an imitator of Jesus, is just to give some well-worded holiday cheer to those you pass by? To give some temporary relief to permanent problems? To just give your shiny smile as you pass by? Do you think that's what he wants? No. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, God has left you in the world for a purpose. You have a purpose. And that purpose is to be a real help to real someones this week, next week, every week. Which is to say, be Christ this Christmas. Be Christ this Christmas. The incarnation was not just a then thing. It was a then thing, but it's not just a then thing. It's a now thing. The Bible teaches us that in a very real sense, God continues to be incarnate in this world. How? Through His people. Through you and through me. We are the incarnation of God in Seattle. His Spirit really dwells in us. So why are we holding it back? You're the real hands, you're the real feet of God right now in Seattle. You're the most real thing in this world this Christmas. Start acting like it. And the power of the Spirit of God really helps someone this Christmas. Really love someone this Christmas. Really talk to someone this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we we know that we struggle with this. That we struggle to, to think about the Christmas story as real. You know, the opposite side of the courtroom has done such a good job of, of, of painting Christmas in this other light, of painting the story as nonsensical, as painting the story as no way this could happen. And we buy into it. Why, why do we do that? Like, if you created the world out of nothing, is there anything that you couldn't do? What does the evidence say? What does it prove that people would give their lives to claiming that Jesus was the Lord God, risen from the grave. Help us to wrestle with those questions. Help us to wrestle so deeply that at the end, we would come to the conclusion and make the decision that Christmas is not just a story, but it really happened. And there's so much hope there. Help us to pass that hope. Help us to pass that hope on to someone else this week. In Jesus' name, amen.